The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, 33-35 and John 8, 2-11. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Glad you are with us this morning. If you're just joining us, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. And we do want to welcome you. Ben kind of already mentioned it a little bit this morning, but um, we are pretty much, we try to be at least, a no-frills church. We want to be honest. Uh, We want to be kind of hype-free. There's enough hype out in our culture. Um, There's enough hoopla out in our culture. And we don't want that in the church, honestly. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. When life's tough, we want, we want to acknowledge that. When things are difficult, when we've got doubts, we want to acknowledge that. Um, and so we want to welcome you. You might be a skeptic here this morning. We want to welcome you. We, we're in, invited. We're in, I'm glad that you joined us this morning. Um, and there's a lot of skeptics among us. There's a lot of doubters among us. There's a lot of people that struggle with belief among us, and we welcome you here this morning. Um, we are in a series that we're calling The Birth of the Peacemaker. And it's basically, we take a break. We usually go verse by verse and study books of the Bible. We think that's the best way uh, to preach through books of the Bible or preach through the Bible and study on Sunday morning. It's also the best way for us as people to come on, come to understand what the Bible really has to say. It's easy to twist the scriptures for our own good and for our own kind of, you know, ideas when you take a verse here and a verse there and a verse there and you kind of create sermon series around that. But it's really a lot more difficult and a lot truer to the text just to read um, a section of scripture and then to teach through it. And that's how we normally preach around here. We've been going through the book of First Peter but right now for Advent, and Advent, if you don't know, it means, the, it means arrival. That's what the word means. Um, and we're talking about Jesus' arrival into human history. And then we're also kind of looking forward to Jesus' second coming and his arrival the next, the next time he comes. And we wanted to take this time to kind of study some interactions that people had with Jesus. Um, as we were reading kind of two sections of scripture each week, and uh, one of them was from the book of Luke. And this, the kind of the context for the book of Luke, uh, well, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll just jump into it this morning, all right? I can see we're all getting situated, so let me pray. 
Father God, I thank you for uh, what you've done in our church, and I thank you for what you're continuing to do. I thank you for meeting us here in your word, that, that you've given us your word so that we can know you, and I pray that, you, that we would meet you here today. I pray that you would help me um, as just a normal guy who's been called to do this uh, with my own family and my own needs and my own uh, sins in my own heart and my own weaknesses. And uh, I don't want to bring any of that to the table this morning, Father. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. It would be all of you and none of me. And I pray that you would feed your people and they would come to see you in a greater way. I pray this in Jesus' name. So basically 40 days after the day Jesus was born, his father Joseph and his mother Mary brought him to the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifices and to pre present Jesus to the Lord as it was prescribed for them to do in the Old Testament law. And when they walked into the temple, there was a man there named Simeon, and Simeon was called a righteous and devout man. He was a man of God who'd been prayerfully looking for God's promised Messiah. So if you don't know this, what this Messiah is all about, let me give you a really quick glimpse into what this is all about. God created everything good, but he gave man, quote, free will to obey him or disobey him. And man, being the stunning geniuses that we are, chose to use said free will, to use that free will to go against our maker and to sin against him. And the promised consequence of that sin was we were cursed, the earth was cursed, our descendants were cursed, and sin and anxiety and stress and death entered into human history. Now, God could have just wiped us off the face of the earth and started over, but instead he wanted to write a different story. And so in that moment, right when Adam and Eve sinned, he said, listen, you've destroyed everything. You did what I told you not to do. You've been cursed, but one will come who, and this is what he says, a promised seed of Mary will come, or of Eve, I'm sorry, of Eve will come who will one day crush the serpent's head. And we sang about that in uh, hark the herald angels sing. And let me just push pause, put a pin right here. You probably have no idea what half those lyrics mean. Google it when you get home, all right? Research it because it is stunning theology, stunning theology. And I, I, I wanted Joel, Joel would have to stop like every three words to explain what it means for Adam's likeness to be effaced in us, right? And what it means for the head of the serpent to be be crushed. Go home and research it, please. It's a beautiful hymn. That's why we keep singing it. So anyways, right when it happens, God promises he's going to one day through one of Eve's children crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan. That's the enemy. That's the great deceiver. So God promises this redemption is going to happen through a Messiah, a one who's going to conquer evil. And so Simeon has been waiting thousands of years later into the future. Simeon's been patiently anticipating the arrival, the advent of this Messiah. And when Simeon, one random Saturday morning, enters into the temple and Mary and Joseph are there with their little baby in their arms, Simeon realizes in this moment, this is him. This is the Messiah, the one I've been waiting for, the one I've been anticipating my whole life. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, this is the Messiah. And so Simeon took Jesus into his arms and he says this in Luke chapter two, verse 30, I'll just read verse uh, 34. Simeon said to his Mary, Jesus' mother, behold, this child, Jesus, is appointed, appointed by who? Appointed by God, for what? The fall and rising 
of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, it means he will meet opposition. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. Obviously speaking to Mary, she's going to witness her son crucified and killed. And a sword is going to pierce her own soul someday. And he says this, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, this is one of the most off-putting things about Jesus. I'm just going to tell you that. There's something about Jesus. He was appointed to expose what's in our hearts. Now, ever since probably puberty, you've been doing everything you possibly could to hide what's going on in your hearts. You don't want mom to know what you're thinking about. You don't want the teacher to know what you're thinking about. You don't want the opposite sex to know what you're thinking about. You don't want your boss to know. You don't want your professors to know. We, we try to do everything we can to hide and cover and stifle and muffle and bury and kill what's going on in our hearts. And, God, and Jesus says he, com- he comes to expose. Ooh. I know in our society today, there's one thing we fear above all others, and that's exposure. That's exposure. That vulnerability. And what Luke is telling us, what Simeon is prophesying here, is that here's the reality about Jesus. No one can remain neutral to him. If you're just, man, Jesus is cool, then you don't really know him. You haven't really examined what he said. You haven't really studied historically what he's done. If you have a neutral or kind of just a chill position on Jesus, then you haven't been intellectually honest and you haven't really examined his claims and who he is as a person. Once you get to know Jesus, you are either repelled from him or you are drawn to him. You are attracted to him. In Luke, Jesus says, or he's called the Prince of Peace. And then later, he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And we're, if you're reading this, you're kind of like, Jesus contradict himself? No, absolutely not. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Simeon. For some, he's a, too aggressive. He's too, he exposes us. And for some, he's endearing. And we move closer to him because Jesus reveals what's in the heart of man. And that always causes a cataclysmic reaction. It crushes some while exalting others causes some to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord, and it causes some to walk away from him, grieved and angry. And in this sense, Jesus is the most polarizing person in the history of mankind. And during Advent, we're studying some of these honest encounters with Jesus, and it's our hope through studying these examples, you too would have an honest encounter with the peacemaker, Jesus. And last week, you can find it on our podcast or on Facebook, Uh, Last week, we saw a morally commendable, spiritually inquisitive, rich, and successful young young man get leveled by Jesus. That Jesus loved this young man enough to kind of blow up his entire faulty religious system and sent him packing to kind of reassess his life's priority. That this was just what this young man needed to bring him one step closer into the kingdom of God. And now this week, we're looking at another encounter with Jesus and an immoral woman caught in the act of adultery and her supposedly moral accusers, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in our society today, there's, last week we saw there's a great division between the rich and the poor, and Jesus came to bring peace between these, and he kind of levels the playing ground. And now today we're looking at the supposedly moral and immoral, and there's great division between them, and there's a lot of animosity between them. And 
How is Je- what has Jesus done to bring peace between these kind of classes of people? Well, we're going to study our encounter this morning in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. You've got your app, open it up. In the seat pocket things in front of you, there's also a Bible. You can grab one out of there. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those Bibles home. That's our gift to you. Uh, let's read in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. This is Jesus' one of his normal practices. The scribes and the Pharisees, now if you don't know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the religious elite. They're the priests. They're the pastors. There's the, the experts in the law. They're the ones who supposedly know God better than anyone else because they've studied his revelation in the Old Testament better than anybody else. They're who you originally would look to for spiritual advice. They come to Jesus and they bring a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, as we begin, we need to know right away that this is a trap. Jesus had been gaining followers and his reputation as a teacher had been growing so rapidly that the religious leaders of the day were jealous and were looking for a way to get rid of him, right? The religious leaders of the day, they liked their crowds, they liked their power, they liked their influence. And now here is this new teacher who, as we see, all the people came to him. They're losing their own influence in society. And so right away, we see this polarizing influence, this polarizing effect of Jesus, that all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. He was an outstanding teacher. People loved to listen to him. And this day, as he's teaching in front of this large crowd, the religious leaders come bringing a woman who they had caught in the act of adultery and they place her in the middle of all of them to lay a trap for Jesus. Verses five and six say this. This is how the religious leaders, the religious leaders say to Jesus, now in the law, that's the Old Testament, it's the 10 commandments in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? You can see right away, it says, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, what does it mean by the the law of Moses? Let me just clarify some things for me. This seems really harsh sentence. I just wanna, if you go back in uh, Deuteronomy, you're gonna find a few things about the laws of adultery. First off, um, if if someone commits adultery and the, the, uh, in the Old Testament, it was what's called a theocracy. That means Um, everybody worshiped God, God kind of ruled, God set the rules through the Ten Commandments and the law, and you had to obey them. There was no separation between church and state. Now that does happen later on in the New Testament. We get some, how we build, how we got these principles for our own country. Um, But Romans 13, I won't get into it too much today. But here's here's what the law said. The law said that in order to convict someone of adultery and carry out this sentence, you had to do at least 
five things. One, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses. All right? Um, there's cases in ancient Israel where there was two witnesses and, and they could not agree on wit, what, the, what type of tree the act of adultery committed, uh, it was committed under. One said it was this type of tree, the other said it was that type of tree and the case got thrown out and, the, and, the, and it got dismissed because the two eyewitnesses did not agree perfectly. It's a lot higher jurisprudence than what we have in our society today where you just have to prove without, you know, without a, uh, you know, probable doubt or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, you had to have two eyewitnesses uh, to co- corroborate every, all the evidence. Secondly, the person has to be caught in the actual act, not just a compromising situation, okay? They have to be caught having sexual intercourse, not just like leaving a bedroom together, right? And, and she like, kind of fixes her dress or something, right? Like they have to be caught in the act, Third, both parties, male and female, get the same sentence. Fourth, according to Deuteronomy 17.7, the eyewitnesses, now this is Old Testament, but the eyewitnesses have to be the ones who throw the first stones as the executors, okay? So this is preventing false witness. That's a breaking of commandment as well. Right? You couldn't just kind of try to set someone up. You had two eyewitnesses. You had all these hoops. And then you have to be, the eyewitnesses have to be so convinced in what they're telling that it's the truth that they are the first ones to throw a stone. And therefore, do you realize the low probability of, you know, to get all four of these or all five of these stipulations together? Therefore, the, stip, the, the sentence was almost never carried out. Very rarely carried out. One, one commentator said, I think they have a case maybe once every seven years where the sentence was actually um, carried out. But nevertheless, here we have in our story this morning, somehow, all maybe all five of these things have aligned and these men have somehow caught this woman in the act and they bring her out into the public and they lay her at Jesus' feet. How will he respond? Now this is the trap. As they see it, Jesus basically has one of two options. Jesus can abandon the law of Moses, or Jesus can abandon the sinful woman. That's the choice before Jesus. First, if Jesus were to abandon the law, He could forgive this woman. He could say, forget about it. Don't stone her. Her adultery is not that big of a deal. We forgive her and he could just disregard the law of God. He could say the Old Testament is the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament times. I've arrived. Forget about the law in the Old Testament. Forget about the Ten Commandments. Forget about, I'm just here to love people. Grab hands, get a guitar. Let's sing Kumbaya or whatever. He doesn't do that. This, now, if he did do that, this would obviously please the woman, right? Can you imagine a more vulnerable position in this society? A woman, basically powerless, brought before her accusers, brought before Jesus, laying, we caught her in the act. She's clearly guilty. What do you want to do? I'm sure she's going, please forgive me. Please give me grace. Please have mercy. 
And it would no doubt please many of the people there. Some of the people, you know, our society and every society gets broken up into two big classes of people, the moral and the immoral. Those in the crowd who had committed adultery, those in the crowd who knew they were sinners, they were probably like, I hope she gets forgiveness. Those in the crowd who were on the moral high ground and they'd obeyed the law since their youth and they felt better than everybody else and they looked down on others, no doubt they were saying, stone the woman, uphold righteousness, uphold the law. But abandoning the law of God would also dishonor God. And it would give the religious leaders good reasons to condemn Jesus. They could say that he's teaching people to disobey God's law. How could a holy prophet from God disobey the law of God or teach others to disobey the law of God? Clearly, he's not a prophet. Stop listening to this guy. Condemn him as a heretic. Now, in theological terms, which most of you don't really care about, probably, this is called, this temptation to abandon the law of God is called antinomianism. And it means, it's just anti-law, nomian, law anti-law. It means anti-rules. It means just do what makes you happy. It means what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me. It means we should just do what we think is right in the moment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. God will forgive you no matter how you live your life. He's up in the sky He's floating around. He's just happy to have anybody, you know, throw some accolades to him. So if you just say, God, you know, my bad, he's cool with it. This makes a mockery of God's holiness, his otherness, his separateness from us, his purity. Now, but there's a second option. And the second option Jesus had, he could uphold the law of God while abandoning the immoral woman. See, one of the reasons people flocked to Jesus was because he was so gentle and he was so gracious towards, quote, notorious sinners. That Jesus ate and drank with drunks and prostitutes. That's one of the things the religious leaders hated about him and the people loved about him. No other religious leaders did that. And the Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus for this. So here in this moment, they've, they've got this scenario where they're pitting the law versus grace. They're forcing Jesus to choose. Are you holy or are you merciful? If he abandoned the woman, he would lose the hope of the people. He would look like just another religious leader that come to heap religious burdens on people and give them long lists of things to do, would condemn people. Now, can you imagine Jesus saying, this woman's guilty and deserves to be punished. She reap what she sows. This would cause every single sinner watching Jesus to conclude that he's a condemner of sinners. And they would walk away sad. Theologian A.W. Pink says it this way, the problem presented to Christ by his enemies is the profoundest moral problem which ever could confront God himself. That problem was how his justice and mercy could be harmonized. 
How can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars her way? How can grace flow forth except by slighting holiness? If God is a perfect and just holy God, how could he ever forgive any sins? To forgive a sin would be to let it go unpunished. And with every sin we commit, there's always a victim. So to let us go free to forgive, let's just say in this scenario that this woman's husband was an innocent victim and she committed adultery on him. If Jesus says, oh, no big deal, come here, baby, it's all good. The husband could be in the crowd watching and going, she gets grace, what? She committed adultery on me. She's walked out on our family. She's broken my heart. He's a, vic- he's a victim in this scenario. And it would look like Jesus is unjust in his ruling. You see the quandary. If Jesus abandons the law, he condones antinomianism. He condones living however you want, throwing the rules out, forgetting the Ten Commandments, which dishonors God and leads people to throw off moral restraints, break commandments, and sin abounds all the more, the more, the more, more. It destroys our relationship. It destroys our society as a whole. He can't do that. This leads people to assume that God is obviously not holy. He's not powerful. He's not pure. He's not perfectly just. But if Jesus abandons the woman, God's justice and holiness would trump mercy. This would lead one to assume that God is not perfectly loving or kind or gracious or good. He might be a great judge in the sky, but he's not very forgiving. And I don't think I can really get to know that God or I even want to get to know that God. Now, I want you to know that this mentality, though it existed 2,000 years ago, It's alive and well today. Most people think you have to choose. I can either be judgmental and be a rule follower and let people know that they're breaking the rules or I can be merciful and I can abandon the rules and I can be loving. Like there's an either or mentality. But there's, here's the, here's the the polarity. There's two poles. He's opposing forces the law, morality, and grace, and love, and forgiveness. There's these poles of legalism and licentiousness. Legalism, obey the rules and God will love you. Licentiousness, it doesn't really matter how you live, God will love you no matter what. But Jesus is going to show us, he's going to blow this whole system up, and he's going to say, no, there's a third way, a new way, a gospel Way. Gospel means good news, that there's good news to be had here. Now, I want you to say, isn't this quite the scene that's being developed here? This is pretty dramatic. Can you imagine? We're sitting here, you're listening to me teaching. Can you imagine someone busting in the back doors? They would probably be tackled, first off. We're in Iowa, 90% of you can still carry. You, you know, like, it's kind of crazy around here. You can k- carry an AK-47 into Starbucks and order your coffee, you know? This is Iowa, right? I wouldn't want anybody to do this, but if they busted in our doors and they bring this woman and they throw her down, everybody, and I guarantee you like 99.9%, everybody's like, and they're gonna look at me, right? Like, what's he gonna do? That's the scene that's getting created here. This huge test for Jesus, it's very dramatic. And now this is about the time in the movies, right? 
When a scene like this, like a showdown at the OK Corral or something, right? A scene like this is building. You've got the music that's playing in the background, right? Now, what you want to happen here is if you ever notice in the movies, like if you, you want to be, you want to have the high ground, right? So when you want to feel powerful in the old Westerns, like you'd get on your horse and you'd be talking down, make sure the other, the bad guy's like office horse. You're going to feel powerful, feel in control. You got the high ground or you're up on the building. You got the sniper's nest. You can look around. That's the goal. When you're in a conflict like this, everybody wants to find the high ground, even the moral high ground, right? But what's interesting here, because we want to be above the enemy, right? We want to see what's going on. But what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't do that. When things get intense and the scene builds up, Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus stoops down and begins riding in the dirt. Now, what a scene. This just completely blows my mind. Because if you're being attacked, right, or if you're being confronted, you don't ever want to turn your back to that person. Everybody knows. You turn your back, that's how a cheap shot comes, right? And this, these religious leaders come in here and they present this, what do you want to do? The law says to, to stone her, what do you say we should do? Basically, choose law or choose this woman. And Jesus stoops down and begins writing in the dirt. Let's, let's, let's read it here. As they, or Jesus bent down, verse six, half, halfway through verse six, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, the people speculate all the time about what Jesus was writing. Here's, here's what Jesus was writing. We have no idea. And if we needed to know, the Bible would tell us, all we know is he's doodling in the dirt. That's all we know, right? And to me, it's just like, because this is how much <laughs> your question really bothers me, okay? Right? Playing in the dirt, right? He is unflappable here. Jesus is in absolute control of himself, and he's not worried or, in, or afraid of this encounter at all. And I want us to see that because Jesus was a human being. He had all the hormones that we have, right? His adrenal glands would be firing, right? The fight or flight mode would be going off in his head. I know my emotions in this scenario would be burning hot, and my adrenaline would spike, and I would be going into fight mode, right? I'm like, who's with me here? I'm looking around. I, that's how I'd be ready to theologically argue. I'd be, you know, I'd be trying to figure things out. Some of you, this would trigger your flight mode. You'd be hightailing it out of there. But Jesus is so meek. Right? Here we see meekness is never weakness. They, they rhyme. That's unfortunate in our language. <laughs> they rhyme. That's all they have in common. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is tempered strength. Meekness is a humble confidence in God that refuses to be shaken. Meekness is when I'm in a quandary and I'm in a trap and my adrenaline's flat firing, I have the chill, the control of soul to bend down and start writing in the dust. Jesus takes a knee and begins to write. But look what they do. Verse Seven And as they continued to ask them. So they're bugging him. They're not going to let Jesus just ignore them. Okay, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? Choose the law, choose grace. Choose this woman, choose God. What are you going to do? 
They're pestering him. Jesus stands up and says, well, let's look, we can read it. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. One of the most famous things Jesus has ever said, you have, you've maybe never read the Bible, you've maybe never been to church before, and you've probably heard that and maybe even quoted that yourself and didn't know that that came from Jesus. And then, I love this part. So Jesus says that, verse eight, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. (laughs) Nothing Nothing is written in the Bible that's not for our good, right? And so it's just like, he's writing on the ground, they bugging him, he stands up, you without sin, cast the first stone, I'm done here, goes back down and starts writing in the dirt. Now, first off, I want to know, I want you, I want you to explain this. I've heard this phrase used in inappropriate ways, okay? I'm going to tell you first what this doesn't mean. First, this doesn't mean that you have to be morally perfect to condemn sin. So that means if somebody is ruining, I meet with a lot of people who are either about to commit adultery or are committing adultery or any other sin that's destroying their family and destroying their life. And I can say, bro, this is a sin. Don't do it, man. And I've heard many times you without sin throw the first stone, right? As if somebody has to be morally perfect in order to point out any sin in another person to help them out, right? If that mentality were true, we could never trust a jury. A jury would have to be, you know, 12, you know, completely moral, um, absolutely sinless people. We, we know obviously that cannot be the case. That is not the case. If this is ever used as a retort to being called out on your sin, you just don't know what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that, you know, so, think about parents. If, you don't, if that's the truth, you don't want your kid to know this Bible verse right? Right? I asked you to clean up your room. You disobeyed. Why? He without a first, he without sin, right? Swing the belt, right? (laughs) He without sin, swat the butt, right? Oh, right? That's not the retort that's being, that's not what, that's not the context. That's not what Jesus is saying. Now, secondly, it also does not mean, and I'm going to show you what it does mean in a minute, nor does it mean that immorality is no big deal. Jesus is not saying to this woman, don't worry about it. You probably had some issues growing up with your father and that led to this behavior and therefore you're not really morally responsible for committing adultery, no big deal. Jesus, when he says later, go and sin no more, he affirms that this is in reality a sin against God and against her husband and against her family. So Jesus isn't kind of lowering the standard. Like back in the day, they used to think adultery was bad, but Jesus here now, he doesn't think it's bad anymore. Now Jesus goes on later to say, he who commits lust in his mind and his heart is guilty of committing adultery. So Jesus never lowers the standard of God's holiness. He actually raises it to what's going on in our heart, not just externally, not just external obedience. So let me show you what this does mean. First, I hope you're picking up that this Jesus, one of the main things he's doing here is he's revealing that this scenario, it wasn't just, it didn't just happen. That this was a setup created and orchestrated by the religious leaders. He knows that these men 
have went around somehow. Maybe they knew that these people were committing adultery. And so they got some people together to meet at the house and to catch them right in the act and to parade them out in public and make this big spectacle. Like, how do you get this whole group of religious Pharisees together? And in the middle of the day, they just stumble upon a few people, you know, a couple people committing adultery, right? This doesn't just happen. This was a setup. And from this setup, when Jesus says, you without a sin, throw the first stone, he's speaking specifically to this scenario. These men were guilty of no doubt setting the whole thing up. That means they already knew the adultery was taking place and they weren't really worried about God's moral law being broken. They wanted to use this situation to trump Jesus. They wanted to use this situation to slander Jesus. And so they weren't really worried about sin or anything. They were worried about getting after Jesus. So that already already shows something that's going on in the heart of these people. But secondly, these men were also guilty of the sin of partiality or misogyny in this scenario. Have you asked yourself yet? Where's the dude? Right? One glaring omission. We got, one, we got the woman in the text here. She, but, right? If you catch somebody in the act, there's two people there, right? They managed to grab the lady and they didn't grab the guy. Moses said that both partners should be punished and yet they only grabbed the woman. Now, I think this is why, look at the, look at the text, what, they, what, what he says here. Uh, verse nine, but when they heard it, so when they heard Jesus say, you without sin, throw the first stone, they went away one by one. Now, why, why does it say one by one? I think it means because they're thinking about the, what he said. They're coming to individual realizations of what Jesus said and what it meant for them. And then look, 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 look at this. Beginning with the older ones. Isn't that interesting? Beginning with the older ones. I think this is why the older men walked away first. Typically, older men have more wisdom. They've lived longer and they knew the law better and maybe they even knew the sickness in their own heart better. And they realized that as Jesus was saying this and they wanted him to condemn this woman, that they stood condemned themselves because they had orchestrated this whole situation and then they let the man go scot-free and they had broken the law themselves. And so they were standing there condemned under the holiness of God, condemned under the own law that they tried to condemn this woman under. And so Jesus sees through their plot. He knows that they're complicit and they're guilty of breaking the law of God by setting this up and letting the man go free. So he calls them to account in this moment and one by one, starting with the older guys, they drop their rocks and they go home. And then eventually this woman is left alone with Jesus. And look what Jesus says. Let me, let me just pause. See, this is the peacemaker. This is an encounter with the peacemaker. Jesus exposes what's going on in, his, on their, in our hearts. And these supposedly moral people come to Jesus 
from their moral high ground. We're moral. Look at this woman. She's broken the law. She's guilty. She's a sinner. What are you going to do? And Jesus turns the internal mirror around on them. And all of a sudden, now they see themselves for who they really are. And that's lawbreakers themselves. Sinners themselves. Guilty themselves. If you haven't sinned, throw the first stone. And they can't do it. Jesus exposes what's going on in our hearts. Verse 10. But there's also, listen, this woman is in a sensitive position. She's vulnerable in this position. Her life is hanging in the balance in first century Israel. And that's the other reason I think Jesus stoops. Jesus doesn't take the moral high ground, even though he has it all the time. His incarnation, that means him leaving heaven and becoming a man and coming to this earth was a divine stooping. It was coming to the earth to write in the dust. And so Jesus, she's laying there in the middle. He takes the position of the vulnerable one and he comes down on her level. And he speaks to her in verse 10. Or he stands up now. Verse 10, Jesus stood up after they left and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now we need, we need to ask ourselves here. The same problem still exists. Her accusers have walked away. The supposedly moral people have been shown their own immorality and they've walked away. But the problem still exists. How can a morally perfect God, a righteous judge, forgive this woman of her sin and not just excuse all the behavior and further victimize her husband and family? This woman is guilty of adultery and therefore a sinner that's worthy of some kind of justice, some kind of condemnation. Isn't that what the holiness of God demands? The Bible says that God cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. Any more darkness could be in the presence of the sun, on the surface of the sun. It can't happen. So how does Jesus give this woman grace without abandoning the holiness of God? Ultimately, this is the biggest question that the Bible tries to answer over and over and over again. And the answer, of course, if you've been around here for any amount of time, is the gospel. That's why we call it good news, because the bad news is God is holy, we're sinful, there's a big gap there. How can we ever get back into his presence and actually enjoy him and want to be near him if he's perfectly just? How can he be good to us and forgive us? This is the great question of human existence. Jesus said here in this text, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Well, that's a direct reference to himself. 
See, Jesus is the only one in this scenario who is without sin. Therefore, he is the only one who could actually pick up that stone and hurl it at this woman. But Jesus says, they don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Why? Here's why. Jesus doesn't condemn us because Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus doesn't throw the stone because Jesus takes the stoning for us. This is the gospel. He doesn't throw away the law of God. He fulfills the law of God. He obeys God perfectly. All the commandments, everything that God ordered us to do in the Old Testament, Jesus does it perfectly and offers it to us by faith. When we put our faith, our trust in him and all the condemnation that the law requires for our sins, Jesus steps in, becomes the immoral woman, and receives the condemnation on the cross. And Jesus on the cross is crucified and condemned as a guilty, adulterous sinner. So adultery, adulterous sinners like us can go free. This is the beauty of the gospel. Guys, we get this garbage repackaged generation after generation, year after year, these two ways. You can either meet God through legalism, obey the law, be good, be moral, be right, and God will bless you. It's bogus. Or forget about God, abandon the rules, do what makes you happy, and everything will work out in the end. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's no beauty in it. It's been going on since the history of humanity. The only beauty is when these two things get reconciled in the person of Jesus and he dies the death that we deserve. A holy God is maintained and a gracious God and a forgiving God is also maintained. We see both in the cross of Jesus. The law is a cold letter and license is cheap grace. Neither of them can capture your heart, like grab your imaginations and change what you desire in your soul and then eternally empower you to live your life differently. Listen, a religion that doesn't change your life is no religion at all, or it's a false religion. It's a powerless religion. I know many of us, we come into a, you know, this just because it's this time of year and it feels good to sing some Christmas songs and to put on the holiday cheer and to see people and wear our Christmas sweaters. Listen, I'm all for you here. I'm glad you're here. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. But it's powerless. What we're offering you this morning and what Jesus is offering you is real power for life change. See, in the gospel, the holiness of God and the mercy of God kiss. Jesus both lives the life that we should live and he dies the death that we deserve for our sins. Then he offers both of these realities to us by faith, by putting our trust in him. And what does that mean? We turn from the other things that we trust in, our careers to save us, our families to save us, our money to save us our country to save us. We turn from those things. We put our trust in Christ. But here's the kicker. When you accept that work that Jesus has done for you on the cross, not just intellectually, you can intellectually assent to it. Yeah, I think he was real. I think he really did that. Okay, cool. I'll do that. That's not what it means to put your faith in Christ. It's a movement of the heart. It's a movement of the affections. Affections. 
when you really, and when, does, when do you know that happens? When you realize that you are this woman. See, when you meet Jesus and he exposes what's in your heart and you feel vulnerable because your morality has been shaken and you have nothing to lean back on and you have to throw yourself on the mercy of God. You have to say, I am a sinner and I, am, I deserve to be condemned, but please God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then instead of receiving this just punishment that maybe you're even expecting, you hear the kind words of Jesus. I don't condemn you. I was condemned for you. I took your place. See, that when you really experience that, that changes you from the inside out. Christians don't just, it's just not words that we say we're new or we're born again or I'm a new person or that was my old life. That really happens in Christ. That you, your old life is crucified with Christ and you're given new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does it sound way out there? Yeah, it is way out there. It's spiritual. It's beyond, we can't really, we try to describe it, we can't really describe it. We once didn't really, weren't really interested to, about God and church and the things of God, and now we have a desire to know him. Why? Because new life has been put inside of us through the power of the Spirit. See, I'm going to tell you, in this society that we're living in, this is what it means to live your authentic life, your authentic self. This woman was brought in here today, Jesus' illustration, his analogy would be completely destroyed because people would be like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Who, what's adultery, right? Sex outside, it's no big deal. Maybe they love each other. It, it, they're, you know, she's got desire. She's got to fulfill them. No big deal. Don't condemn her. Don't condemn her. No, no, no. Real life change happens when there is an acknowledgement of our sinfulness. And then when there is acknowledgement of our sinfulness, when, when Jesus exposes what's in our heart and we're not just hiding it, right? We can admit, I'm an adulteress. I, I search after different lovers, the love of money, the love of reputation, the love of power, the love of accolades. I'm searching after other lovers and Jesus exposes that adulterous nature of our heart and we don't just try to stuff it and bury it and post a cute pic on Facebook to try to get over the feeling or try to talk ourselves out of any standard of morality. We actually acknowledge it and say, you know what, I am a sinner. That's why I feel this way. And when we acknowledge that, we say, Jesus, what are you gonna do to me, a sinner? We lean into him and he says, I won't condemn you. I was condemned for you. See, that is when we can receive the love of God in our real authentic self, into our heart. We can be both sinful and loved. Hear me, millennials, I'm gonna hear, your greatest fear is to be really known, right? We, we've got a thousand Facebook friends and yet nobody really knows how broken we are inside, right? We're here today, gone tomorrow. We'd rather, we'd rather buy a van and live on the road alone than we would to be really known by a group of people our whole life. You weren't made for that. You fear being really known. If somebody really knows me, they'll run from me, they'll abandon me. They might. God will never. 
And the only way to really know God is to let him expose your real self and let that real self be loved. And that real self is sinful, but it's also loved. And then here, lastly, when when we really get what God has done for us, there will be real and lasting life change. That's how you know you've had a real encounter with Jesus. You get grace for forgiveness, but now you also get grace to empower future obedience. Jesus says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, will she do that perfectly? No. But that's her goal, and that should be our goal. Go and sin no more. The person who has received the grace of God to forgive our sin has also received the grace of God to resist sin, to run from sin, and put put to death the remaining sin that lies in our heart for the rest of our life. Now listen, this is what Jesus offers you this morning. This is why I want you and us all to have a real encounter with the real Jesus. He offers something no one else does, the forgiveness of every sin, (laughs) the acceptance into the family of God where you're perfectly loved, you're known and loved. And lastly, he offers you empowerment for future obedience. The power to resist sin. So to this woman, he's literally saying, yes, you have committed adultery. I give you grace. I forgive you because I'm taking your condemnation. Now don't go do that again. Turn from that sin and follow me. And that's what he's saying to all of us this morning. Turn from your false lovers. Turn from your idols. Turn from the adultery in your heart. And turn to the one who knows you at your worst. Knows you at your worst. And loved you the best when you were at your worst. Went to the cross and died for you when you were at your worst. Proves how much he loves you. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Father, once again, I I stand amazed at the person of Jesus. I'm reminded in the book of Revelation that says that he is the lion, the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb. And in this one man, this God man, we see perfect boldness, perfect strength, perfect authority, and yet we see humility, gentleness, weakness. These two poles of a personality that rarely reside in one person. We see them both perfectly displayed in Jesus. And that brings me to awe. That brings me to worship. And to think about him taking our punishment and living the perfect life, deserving just exaltation and glory and riches and wealth and everything that greatness should be just thrown upon him. Instead, he takes the cross. For us. Father, would you take that reality and press it down deep into our souls this morning? People that feel abandoned, people who feel immoral, people who feel vulnerable, people who feel weak. Would the Holy Spirit 
give them a divine sense of acceptance and forgiveness and love and grace. And those who feel proud, those who feel arrogant, those who look down on others from their moral high horse, would you humble them? Humble them before your cross. And all of those who confess their sin and they turn from it and they repent and they put their faith in Jesus, would you fill us with the joy of our salvation? Can you imagine, can I imagine what this woman felt like this day as she left this encounter with Jesus? Forgiven, not condemned, cleansed, offered new life, offered new power to live differently. Would you let that reality be true for us as we take the elements that you gave us on the night that you were betrayed, took the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you and the cup. And you said, this wine is my blood that's going to be spilled for you to cover all of your sins. And so this morning we come together as the family of God and we celebrate the broken body of Jesus who left heaven and came to be broken for us and shed his blood to forgive us and invite us into the family of God and empower us anew. And we eat it in faith this morning. Father, would you nourish our hungry souls for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.